films are films and drawing is drawing. It's imaginative, isn't it? It's, you have to find it. Your lens is your is your magnifying glass. The microphone is your butterfly net. You've got to find it. It's lucrative, but it's there. For me, every project is brand new. Every project is like the first project I've ever done. I'm scared. I'm nervous. I want it to be right. Every project is like the first one I've ever done. I don't want to repeat myself. Hello and welcome to The Big Interview. I'm Robert Bounds and my guest today is Steve McQueen, the only person to have won the Turner Prize for Contemporary Art and an Oscar for Best Picture. McQueen likens his two professional worlds to the short story and the novel. One an experimental, experiential thing, the other a work of narrative and storytelling. McQueen maybe exists in the intersection of that Venn diagram, getting on with his work and not really wanting to talk about it. But talk about it he did, lucky for us. McQueen was born and raised in West London, ducked through school and found himself appreciated and found himself, perhaps, at the Chelsea College of Arts, where he drew and drew and grew. He made video artworks that handled race and masculinity and has made films that have handled those themes too, while nominally being about an Irish Republican hunger striker in hunger, a sex addict in shame, a free black man who's made a slave in 12 Years a Slave, and most recently, politics, poverty, racism and gender painted on the canvas of a heist movie. That movie is called Widows, and that is the subject about which we started talking. Steve, thank you for your time today. We're talking about Widows and other things, perhaps. What an amazing, exciting film that is. I wanted to ask you how you started what the kernel of that was, what the kickoff was in your head. When I was 13 years old, living in Ealing, on TV appeared this series written by Linda Plant called Widows about these four women who have to attempt a heist after their husband's demise. And it was one of those situations where I saw myself within these women, these heroes. Usually I projected myself onto Sean Connery being 007 or Johnny Wiseman playing Tarzan, but all of a sudden I projected myself onto these women who I understood for the first time as heroes because they had to sort of deal with the idea that people not deeming them capable and being judged by their parents. And I just love the way they went about their sort of task, getting to their goal with the same situation of sort of turning over and the idea of sort of navigating certain kind of stereotypes put upon them and turning on it's on their head. They're underdogs. I mean, they're gritty women, it seems, in the original and obviously in your take on it. But they're women with a lot going for them. But they have to suddenly realise their potential very quickly. Well, that's it. That's what I love about this whole idea of accelerating the sort of emotional development through, unfortunately, their grief situation, the, the grief, but also the fact that they have to sort of pull off this high. So the emotional sort of development has to be sort of accelerated as well as putting on the political aspect onto the picture and having as an election, which sort of accelerates things too. Yeah. I mean, the train has left the station from the opening of the curtain because we know it's a highest picture as well. So there's a downward motion from the get-go. And what's that like doing, it's a genre film, you haven't done that sort of thing before. It's, it's like you've got a new train set that you can play with and you know kind of which direction that train's got to go in, but you can paint the train any colour you want. Mm. You can put any driver in the, in the driver's seat. Is that vaguely analogous to the process of doing something like that? It's, it must be fun to make something where you maybe know the end before you, you start it. What's interesting is about that as well, the whole idea of a, a, a train analogy, is that you're moving through the landscape, the environment of so many things, so therefore you could have these, all these different kind of stops 
on the idea of, of what the city sort of entails to get to the end of your destination. So I just love that whole idea of this roller coaster ride, moving through the city and sort of you know getting an idea of policing, getting an idea of corruption, politics, yeah. religion, and how that how all those things sort of intertwine. And were those things on the table when you started making the picture in your head? The fact that I've been going to Chicago for 22 years, my first museum show was in the Art Museum of Modern Art in Chicago, 1996, and my girlfriend at the time, who now is my partner, went to a Democratic convention when Bill Clinton was still president. So I always say my first footprint into uh, Chicago was art and politics. So those things were so very much in my mind, that the McQuarrie McDonald event and how that sort of resonated and sort of speaking to people who were involved in that. It was uh, very important to sort of do the research with myself and Gillian Flynn. So it goes back to that, your time in Chicago, your first museum show. 22 years ago, yeah. Did you see, is it the 9th District? No, it was 18th. 18th, 18th but District. But also over a period of time, of course, it was going back and I was very fortunate enough to be invited and, and to go back by myself. Seeing how the how race and class and politics and religion and everything else and policing were what was happening there. It's very evident. The question is, you know, why did I make this picture in London? London in the early 80s is very different to London now. And I wanted to place this fiction in the contemporary modern city. And, and for me, that, with all its problems, and that for me was Chicago. And you worked with Gillian Flynn on the script. If you're the train driver, she's shoveling in some coal, certainly very useful along well, the way. I think, <laughs> I, think, well, I think myself and Gillian, as far as the script is concerned, is, is both on the steering wheel. You could say that I'm sort of the, the main driver as such, but at the same time, I mean, the reason why I wanted to work with Gillian Flynn because she's Gillian Flynn, and she's an amazing, incredible writer. And that collaboration, for me, it was extraordinary, sort of fruitful in the way that at some point you become two musicians and you don't know who is playing what note. And that's, that's the whole idea of sort of collaboration. We're very different, completely different. But what we give to each other uh, as far as this collaboration is concerned is very collaborative and very sort of, uh, can I say, there's a union. In terms of collaboration, how cool are you with that? I ask because being an artist and being a filmmaker. Well, so two different things. I mean, artists, I mean, again, it's like, I know I don't want. <laughs> that's, the, that's the thing. I think to be collaborative and you're the main instigator is to know what you don't want. Musician was like Miles Davis and his band, you know, you know, you know, he writes a harmony and a melody, but within that, space in between us we could do whatever the hell you want but it's got to stay within the harmony melody that's about it that's what you want do you think people get the wrong idea of that when artists make a work people feel like it's someone in a paint spattered studio or someone starving in a garret they have a romantic idea of the myth of creation well, it's and different. the selfishness of the artist well it's different that, that happens yeah. for sure i mean you know i think film is about collaboration yeah. to some extent of course there's the auteur there's the main instigator whatever director but as a filmmaker, you can't do everything, and you don't want to do everything. I have an amazing cameraman, Sean Bobbitt, who I've been working with for 18 years. Joe Walker, editor, I've been working with 11 years. Previously, I made three films with Michael Fassbender. So, and of course, Adam Stockhouse in the last two movies I've done with him as art director. That's filmmaking, you know. As far as just being the studio making a painting or, or, or making a sculpture, that's very different. Those relationships must be very deep. There must be a lot of testing of the water, but you must make friends fast or not on the set of a film when you're collaborating like that with, as I say, some of your key actors, your cameraman. Yeah, I think it's like a band, you know, actually, and you come together and you do an album, which is a feature film. By the end of the album and then the tour, you hate each other, you want to see each other again, and then you come <laughs> back after like you know, a few years to do it all over again. For me, it's about trust, but also it's about people who understand my sensibility. That's what it is. And for Widows, casting, I mean, that people have been very interested. It's got such a strong cast of people that have been described as stars and should be stars 
rather than would-be stars. And that must have been an amazing process. I feel like there must have been a lot of people running through your mind before you chose the people you chose for those roles. Casting, I mean, again, to find someone like Cynthia Erivo, who was on Broadway and never done a picture before, that was through my casting director, Francie Maisley, who pointed me in that direction. I saw on Broadway, go, go see this woman on Broadway. I did, and I immediately I cast her. She had never made a movie before, but I thought, yes, that's Belle. And she was a tremendous presence. So someone like Elizabeth Dubeck, who I think people have seen before, but never given this, in a feature film, this amount of sort of uh, possibilities. And I think she's absolutely incredible. We know uh, Michelle Rodriguez, but we've never seen Michelle like this and, and since maybe Girlfight, her first film many moons ago. And I think also even Viola Davis, we've never seen her like this before. She was actually you know, a fully formed woman. She's a master. She's, she's like an iceberg. The depth and the, the gravitas of her is just incredible. She's, a, she's interesting when she sort of turns off her door handle and eats cornflakes. For me, she reminds me of like De Niro in the 80s. There's real kind of uh, depth and humanity to her and vulnerability. Like you could watch her reading out a shopping list and For sure. it would be a pretty good short film. And in Widows, she has to turn on a sixpence. She has to be vulnerable and she has to be tough. What's One frame on? after another. A lot's going on in, in a short yeah. period of time. You know, things have to be put into, into place. You know, the highest has sort of been instigated. And through her grief, she has to sort of, you know, grapple all of that. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, and I love seeing Widows at the press screening, and then I went to see it again last week. <laughs> and don't leap across the table and throttle me for banality. But how on earth did you cast the little white dog? <laughs> uh, the, the, yeah, uh, Olivia. She was great. I mean, we had a couple of dogs before. I was like, oh my God, we can't have that. <laughs> we needed a dog that sort of could do what we needed them to do. And of course, you know what's so funny about the dog is that um, it's a real uh, okay, narrative sort of uh, device in the picture, of course, but also in the way that how the, the, the dog softens Veronica, played by Viola Davis, because she could come off at a certain point a bit hard nosed. And the fact that she has this dog, this white fluffy dog, gives you the benefit of the doubt that she might be okay because she's taking care of that sweet sort of fluffy dog. So what it does in some ways is actually, it is a, a narrative device in order to sort of soften Veronica because at the same time she can come off a bit austere, but at the same time when she has a dog, so you think, okay, no, no, she cares for this dog, but also you understand that at some point in the film, the dog is the only thing she's got. Everything has been taken away from her. And the fact that that dog in the, in, the, in the picture sort of helps us with a very big uh, narrative twist in the picture. Yeah, I mean, there's yeah, it's perfect. Yeah. It's the golden fleece is that dog in some Absolutely. way. Absolutely. Again, yeah, again, I think it's one of those things, but you see what she does when she's going to do a, a certain job in, in the picture and she takes care of that dog at the end. It's, it's kind of um, humorous, of course, at first, but when you sort of subliminally what it's actually doing to one and then you don't even see it, you don't even think about it. And then all of a sudden it becomes vitally important to the narrative. I wanted to ask you about drawing, Steve. I read somewhere that when you were at Chelsea, you suddenly slotted right in and you loved it. You suddenly mm. loved life. And it was down to drawing and being good at it and knowing mm. you were and, and all mm. the rest of it. Is that where films start sometimes? You, do you storyboard them? Do you Never. use that? Never. You don't do that? No, films are films and drawing is drawing. No, it's imaginative, isn't it? It's, you have to find it. Your lens is your is your magnifying glass, your microphone is your butterfly net. You've got to find it. It's lucrative, but it's there. What's the experience of making your, your earlier films compared to something like Widows, which seems like the bigger undertakings, there's more people maybe on the sets, they're bigger beasts somehow. Is that A, true, I wonder? And do they feel it is different? true, but it's no, it's no different. You deal with a camera, the thing that's in front of the camera and a microphone. 
and the headphones are over your head and I'm on a monitor or not because a lot of more people doesn't mean for me doesn't doesn't mean anything I mean I'm never doesn't affect me because I'm so focused on what's happening in front of me and also collaborating with all these wonderful people they're there for you they're there for you to fulfill your ideas so it's great to have all those people who are there to fulfill your ideas because no one's not meant to be there who's not meant to be there it's obviously a collegiate environment how much do things change from script and your original idea well, a, lot, that, a lot yeah a lot. the script is a blueprint isn't it it's like to make it making a building, you've got the blueprint, and then all of a sudden, you know, it's all foreseen stuff, you, you change as it, as it goes along. And also the actors sort of bring it in certain things which you never can realize for their performances or whatever. For me, it's like, and I don't sort of collaborate with robots, I do collaborate with artists. And so for me, it's a difference with actors and artists, and you want to hire artists, because actually, maybe they can raise your game. My idea of an actor, of working with an actor, is basically helping them to become a sphere. So at a certain point, whatever they do, is correct. However, their role is correct. My job is to help them to get to that point and then get the hell out of the way and say action. So you enable them to, to roll with it, I guess, right? Well, yeah, I think there's a situation of conversation. I think we have to get there to that point where whatever they do, whatever, every take can be vastly different from the next, but that's the character, so it doesn't really matter. Never a situation where you can put your hand like here and do, to touch this or do this like this. No, 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 no. It's got to be organic. Otherwise, the camera will tell. It becomes, you're like... Yeah. Sort of holding them like a robot, and we don't want that. Because you're renowned for getting wonderful performances out of people. Do you know how you're doing that, I wonder? Trust. Okay. Yeah, I think trust, 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 and a little belief. I think trust. And when an actor is in a safe environment, uh, he or she could do what the hell, you know, they, they, could, it, it, they can make themselves into a fool. It doesn't matter because they know they're in a safe environment, then they'll go for it. And it all goes down to the crew. It all goes down from catering to hair and makeup to sound, to the camera department, to the gaffers, everyone. Once everyone understands, when an actor comes into an environment, they're a bit skittish, they're almost like a you know, throw a bit of racehorses. They know when things are up. So if they're in a, they come into an environment where they understand that this is a movie where everyone's invested in it, it's their movie, then they feel that they can actually fly. So that's what it's about. Yeah. When you started making films, suddenly, I suppose, a lot of extra jobs, a lot of extra things got added on to making short films with Thomas Dane and, and, and your gallery I and stuff. I've never made short film in my life. I make artworks. And that's the difference. Do they feel different things when they're in cinemas and they have a different audience expectation attached to them, I wonder? One is narrative, one is not. Of course, both narrative, one way, shape, form, the other. But I would just describe it as one as poetry. Artwork is as poetry and the, the, the feature film is the narrative, the yarn. Both saying different things, but both saying them differently. One is fragmented, fractured, concise, as far as the poetry is concerned. And the yarn is the yarn, the novel is the, art and the novel, so they're very different. Using the same devices, but saying things differently. Do you use a different part of your brain for them? I don't analyse myself. I don't, <laughs> I don't analyse myself. I know, I know, I know you, I know no, you, no, you I get don't. on. I know you get on with things. I know you just mm. do them, or you get you get on with them. I know you just yeah, do I don't want really, I don't. I just what's true. Again, I think that's the most important thing. My my only working to not my sort of strife or me striving is all about um, the truth. That's my main sort of uh, brain function, not sort of how, why, or what. In fact, all those how, how, and what, how, who, why, and what. That's my main brain function. When it comes to like looking, do you look for stories? Sometimes it comes to you. Sometimes they come to you. Sometimes you could be a magnet. Absolutely. I mean, I think, in fact, all of my pictures, apart from shame, was like magnets because they're sort of somehow true stories in a way, and they came to me. So that that's it. So, you know, hunger was something which I grew up with, again, being in the 80s and as a young child. Uh, shame was much more sort of just thinking about things with myself and Abby Morgan. 
12 years or something I wanted that I had a narrative in my head already, a free man who gets kidnapped into slavery and then my wife found the book, Widows or something I saw on TV. I think that's a magnet situation too. You want something so badly that it actually sometimes attaches itself to you rather than you go looking for it, fishing as it were. But things can, can attach themselves to you, absolutely. After a while, you have the instinct to know whether that's something that you can make, that you can do, that you can well, that will do you justice, and you can do justice. I think all these stories, in some ways, that again, to one to certain degrees, are things that have been you know brushed under the carpet. You know, and looking at women and how, in a way, which sort of you know hasn't been done really. Look at women how they sort of have to sort of grapple with their everyday, and putting it into a into a genre that usually for men, or if it's slavery, or if it's sort of. Uh, looking at American slavery or looking at sexual addiction or looking at a hunger striker. For me, it's always been the hard road, the, the difficult stuff rather than the easy stuff. And I don't know why. I mean, I, I think that's very important for me to sort of grapple with. When you were 15 in Ealing and you were, your heroes until that point had been Sean Connery and Johnny Vice. 13, yeah. 13. Mm-hmm. That must have been quite a profound thing to suddenly go, wow, these women in this Linda LaPlante well, TV amazing. show. Suddenly, it's something that you're accessing a lot of different experience. You're looking at yourself in the mirror in a different way there, aren't you? If you're suddenly going this... Identify with these women. This is these are interesting people. They've got it tougher somehow. Well, not look at myself in a different way. Just look at myself in actuality. I mean, you know, the, the way they were looked at. No one, no one thinks they have the balls to do it. That's been my entire life. So, <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's very sort of, uh, yeah. It's like looking in the mirror. For me, it, it's just about dealing with, as a person living today, uh, so many things come at them, come at you rather. As a black child, what happens often. They're not you, you become political at a very early age because you are asking those questions very, very early. Mm. How, who, why, and what at the very early stage because of the environment you're in. So it brings a lot of things to the surface. And you said that these relationships with all of your cast and crew, but especially maybe the cast in terms of getting a great performance on screen are to do with trust. Do you have to kind of realise some things when you're a kid to be able to break down those barriers a bit, old, a bit better when you're, an, when you're a man? Can I swear a little bit? Yeah. Well, I don't want to be an arsehole, so, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, it's like talking to another person, isn't it, really? And I, I've always wanted to know this about you. As I say, I asked you whether you said, I don't know whether, I've got, I've got, there aren't two holes in my brain, everything does the same thing, and I'm mm-hmm. not interested in that thing. But it's rare for people to have such an august career in two related but always regarded as separate fields as fine art and filmmaking. Mm-hmm. And you're obviously aware of, of a reputation that you have. Is it something that gives you gives you pleasure is it something that you I ever care, think about I don't, I don't think about it because you're the critic you think you say that and it's fine it's good you know it's nice to hear but i don't if, if i'm not conscious of that i just do things because i'm an amateur and i mean that i'm a very happy british amateur because as far as i'm concerned if, if i become so-called oh, i think i'm a professional then i'm done i think nothing for me to learn nothing for me to sort of ex- you know, explore so i'm not at all um conscious of that fact in, in a way i mean it's nice to sort of when people get accolades for certain things, then people sort of, oh, think, oh, well, yeah, he's this, he's that, he's, or he or she is the other. But regardless of that, or you don't get that, or you do get that, it doesn't really matter because you're, I'm on my journey, I'm on my path. I'm trying to sort of work things out through work. I mean, tomorrow, you know, guess what? I might design a men's collection. I don't know. Anyone should be able to do anything they want to do or try to experiment. I've, I've always just tried to sort of to be truthful to who, I, who and how I am. That's it. So if it appears like this, well, great, but I'm not, I'm not conscious of it. I'm not really not focused on that. It's about the work, W-O-R-K, the work and the story, fact. Do you keep yourself on your toes knowingly in that way? For me, every project is brand new. Every project is like the first project I've ever done. 
I'm scared, I'm nervous, I want it to be right. Every project is like the first one I've ever done. When I walked in the movie set, the film set of Widows, it's almost like the first movie I ever did. So, you know, yes, absolutely, because uh, just how it is, it's got to be brand new every time. It's got to be brand new every time. I don't want to repeat myself. You know, you have followers, you don't have followers, it doesn't matter to me. It's got to be brand new every time. And, you know, when you think of people like Miles Davis, I always think of people like Miles who just try to, you know, looking at him and, and the way he, he pushed music and, you know, was just trying to do things. And trying is, is enough. Trying is enough. Yeah, trying is enough. An artist like him was criticised at certain points in his career for making too many records that weren't like his last one. There you go. And that's because he was just interested to do something. And I think that's... Well, I think, he's, I think you're exploring. You're yeah. exploring. I think in sounding or images, you explore. You explore narrative. You explore... You have to. Otherwise, you know, you could do... You could do how many of the same albums, how many of the same movies. But for me, it's never about preaching to the converted. It's, it's always been about trying to sort of uh, push it, whatever that is. You know, it's, it's very important. Very, very important. Steve, thank you very much. Thanks for your time today. My pleasure. Thank you. My thanks to Steve McQueen. Widows is out in UK cinemas now. That's it for this season of The Big Interview. We'll be back in the spring of 2019. The Big Interview was produced by Yolene Goffin, recorded by Bill Luti and edited by Cassie Galpin. Special thanks on this series to our studio team. Sam Impey, Christy Evans, Sarah Miles, Kieran Banerjee, Helena Geriat, Bill Luti, George McDonough, Kenya Scarlett and David Stevens. I've been Robert Bounds and thank you very much for tuning in. <laughs>